Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak. I'm an economist and the executive vice president of criminal justice at Arnold Ventures. I have two guests this week. First is Marguerite Burns. Marguerite is an associate professor of population health sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Marguerite, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And second is Laura Dague. Laura is an associate professor of public service and administration at Texas A&M University's Bush School. Laura, welcome. Thank you. First, I'll remind listeners that everything we say today, of course, represents our own views and not necessarily those of our employers. Okay, let's dive in. So today we're going to talk about your research on how Medicaid access affects recidivism. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Marguerite, uh, you go first. Sure. So I am a health services researcher, and my research is kind of broadly concerned with uh, the role of Medicaid on health and economic welfare for adults, and particularly adults with substance use and mental health disorders. And I I kind of came to this broad area of uh, research from prior work experience before I went to graduate school as a community health center administrator. And that has really sort of like driven all of my kind of research interests and questions. And in our country, sort of it's harder, it's hard to find a a population that has higher concentration of poverty and behavioral health disorders than adults with a history of incarceration. And when the ACA, you know, led to expansions of Medicaid eligibility for low-income adults without dependent kids, it meant that there was a opportunity for Medicaid to play a larger role in this particular population because most adults leaving prison are, you know, fit this sort of eligibility category. So as you know, Medicaid has played a really positive role in the um, in terms of gains in healthcare access, financial well-being and health in a more general population. So I was interested in understanding the degree to which it may play a similar role for individuals who are leaving prison and support their kind of sustained return to the community. Great. Laura, how about you? So I think I came to this from, you know, a broad interest in public policy that started back probably when I was an undergraduate, like sitting as an intern for a local legislator. I grew up in rural Kansas and I became interested in sort of like sitting in these committee meetings, like where was the numbers coming from? How did people know stuff and and how could I find that stuff out? And so I ended up in graduate school. I have a PhD in economics from University of Wisconsin where I studied public and labor economics. And, you know, my formative time in graduate school was health reform. So there were all kinds of big open research questions. Healthcare is like, I think 17% of the economy these days. So health economics was really like what I decided to focus on. Medicaid is a big portion of that, which I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk more about. And um, it's a really important safety net program also. So Marguerite and I had been successfully collaborating on multiple projects about Medicaid that included building these cool linked administrative data on Medicaid and employment at the Institute for Research on Poverty at Wisconsin. And we have really complementary skills and we work well together. So, you know, she did some of the heavy lifting on getting the corrections data funded and built and asked me to get involved, I think, because of my prior work on employment outcomes for Medicaid recipients and analytic skills. 
Fantastic. Dream team and dream data. Uh, That's a fun project. (laughs) Okay. So your paper is titled In-Kind Welfare Benefits and Reincarceration Risk, Evidence from Medicaid. So let's start with some context. Marguerite, what do we know about the health status of people who are incarcerated or who have been recently released from prison? So this is a population that bears a really uh, disproportionate burden of disease in general. Almost 60% of adults who are in state prisons meet the diagnostic criteria for either substance abuse or dependence. 37% have a history of mental illness and 43% report kind of ever having had a chronic or infectious medical condition. So with the top most common being hypertension, asthma, hepatitis, and these are chronic persistent conditions. So they don't necessarily sort of, you know, go away when individuals um, return to the community. And when released, um, the population also has really elevated rates of mortality. So for example, during the first two weeks post-release, the risk of death from all causes is almost 13 times higher than peers of the same age, sex, and race from the general population. And it's primarily driven by overdose. But the, this sort of elevated risk of mortality persists over you know, years. It's not just those first two weeks. So even after two years, roughly, the risk of, of death is still almost four times higher. And the leading causes there include overdose and cardiovascular disease. And Laura, for some other context, the other part of this paper, what is the Medicaid program and who is eligible for it? Yeah, Medicaid is a program that pays for the health care utilization of people with low incomes, if we sort of put it really broadly. Today, like in the United States, it covers more than 90 million people, and that's about 20% of the U.S. population in total. So historically, you could get Medicaid if you were low income and you had some other special thing about you. So you had to be either age eligible, like a child, you could be eligible because of a certain type of health need, such as being a pregnant woman, or you could be someone who was elderly or disabled. But the large swath of folks who were not eligible under these sort of categories would be um, folks who were adults, working age, didn't have any disabling health conditions. And in some states, parents of dependent children could qualify. But in most states, if you did not have a dependent child in your home, you would not qualify for Medicaid at all. And so that all changed with the Affordable Care Act when states were allowed for the first time to use federal dollars to pay for health care for adults without dependent children and for parents to a higher income level. And so Medicaid is a joint state and federal program. And that means it looks very different in different states. And states have a lot of decisions to make about exactly how their program looks, which populations they cover. Some populations to cover are required. Others are optional. There's just all sorts of elements of choice that make state Medicaid programs look very different from one another. So when we say like the Affordable Care Act really changed Medicaid, part of what that meant is that states got to decide whether or not they would expand Medicaid to these new populations. And something else that's 
I think historically been true, but is now changing. And what makes this uh, this paper especially policy relevant right now is uh, my understanding is that Medicaid excluded people who are in who are incarcerated. Is that right? Yes. So there's a inmate exclusion, and and Medicaid cannot pay for care while individuals are incarcerated. Okay. So yeah, that is that is changing, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. So Marguerite, why might access to Medicaid affect criminal recidivism for those coming out of prison? Yeah, so we are thinking about two particular mechanisms. Um, The first one is financial and the second one is um, health related. So in terms of the financial mechanism, so Medicaid is an in-kind transfer program. It provides a financial benefit to individuals who have Medicaid coverage. and, And so folks might experience that as either a reduction in financial risk and or freeing up of resources that maybe they were otherwise going to spend on healthcare. But they can only experience this financial benefit when they're living in the community. As we just mentioned, they don't have they they can't um, have Medicaid coverage historically anyway while incarcerated. So having Medicaid coverage increases essentially the opportunity cost of reoffending. And then in terms of the health channel, So the idea is that Medicaid coverage might influence recidivism by improving access to healthcare and specifically for conditions that are associated with uh, higher risk of recidivism. So that would be untreated, you know, mental health and substance use disorders. So, you know, if, if an individual has greater access to care, they may be able to treat symptoms that like impulsivity, for example, that would increase the likelihood of criminal activity. And so Marguerite again, before this paper, what did we know about how access to healthcare in particular affects criminal behavior? Yeah, so the evidence is mixed regarding kind of the degree to which access to treatment for mental health and substance use disorders reduces criminal behavior. And the findings kind of vary a bit by population, by the kind of identification strategy or research design and, and the outcome. And when when looking through this evidence base, we sort of looked at sort of two big kind of areas of research, the first being kind of clinical and intervention research, and then the second being health policy and economics research to look at the question of how access to care might influence criminal activity. And in the clinical and intervention space, the most promising effects of treatment for substance use disorder on recidivism include kind of two pretty different categories of treatment. So one being very high touch, kind of residential therapeutic communities. So individuals are released from prison and they um, reside, they get housing, they get kind of wraparound healthcare services. So very comprehensive sort of set of services. And then at the other extreme, for individuals who specifically have opioid use disorder, there's some evidence that receipt of medication treatment for opioid use disorder reduces criminal activity. So that's kind of the clinical space. In the policy and economics research, there's a a handful of studies that, like ours, have used changes in policy that change Medicaid availability, essentially, to look at whether access to care is a means by which Medicaid might be influencing criminal activity. So, for example, they conducted a study in which they observed a reduction in select types of crime as a function of expansions of Medicaid eligibility. And then they went on to look at whether or not SUD treatment might be operative in terms of a mechanism. And they did find that an increase in population level treatment rates was associated with reduction in the rate of crime. Turning kind of to the mental health care access literature, I'll just point to sort of two kind of examples. So Marisa Domino and her colleagues 
had a series of studies in which they were examining post-incarceration healthcare use on recidivism. And in this particular one that I'm thinking about, they were looking at mental health care use among individuals who had serious mental illness who were released from state prison. And in that instance, they used a, an instrumental variables approach. They did not find any kind of reduction in recidivism. Alternatively, Lisa Hakame, who, her recent study, which I believe has already been discussed on this program as well, showed that the loss of Medicaid eligibility on reaching adulthood was associated with an increased risk of initial incarceration. And that this effect was driven by those who had a past diagnosis of mental illness. So the, the interpretation there would be that reduced access to treatment for mental illness was operative. So there's variation in the literature and, you know, we're, we're just, you're hoping to kind of add to that, not the variation, but to clarity, I guess. If I could add to that, a lot of the way that people have thought about Medicaid in this space is that it has to be this health channel through which things are operationalized. And I think like when you look at the actual research on Medicaid, there's been really a recent emphasis on some of the biggest effects that we see of Medicaid are not directly on health, although we do see effects on health, but on folks' financial circumstances. And so that's one of the reasons that we really wanted to try to think of a way to drill down a little bit more on that because of these big effects on finances, such as reduce medical debt and sort of this easing of other types of obligations, then, you know, there's this other possible channel that could also be important. And there's previous research showing that kind of outside of this criminal behavior conversation, just looking at the effects of Medicaid on, on people's outcomes. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay, great. And yes, I'll just uh, mention briefly, Elisa Hakame was on this program, so we'll put a a link to that episode in the show notes. Okay, so Laura, what did we know about how access to other public benefit programs? So Medicaid is, of course, one thing you can qualify for if you're low income, but you can also get food stamps and all kinds of other things. What do we know about how access to all of those other programs affects criminal behavior? Yeah, so from prior literature, it looks like There's some really nice work on uh, both the TANF program, which is a cash welfare benefit, SSI, which is also a cash welfare benefit, but specific to people with disabilities, and SNAP, which is uh, food benefits. All of these things have been found to reduce criminal recidivism. And then I think the other sort of piece of the literature that's relevant on the more financial end of things is that it looks like strong labor market conditions also create circumstances that help ease the transition to the community by enabling opportunities to work. I think Medicaid is different from both like TANF and SNAP in some pretty clear ways, right? Like Marguerite already mentioned, you know, it's an in-kind benefit. SNAP is an in-kind benefit, but it's a little bit closer to cash in many ways. There's really no way to sort of translate your Medicaid benefits into cash in in any way. It's hard to sell your your healthcare access to somebody else. Exactly. Yeah, that's a little more direct way of saying it. So when we think about the effects, you know, that that's one way in which uh, things are probably different. 
but also historically part of the the things that the research is based on on TANF and SNAP is that there were federal bans on allowing folks to connect with those benefits if they had things like felony convictions or particular types of felony convictions. Medicaid is not like that. You still can get Medicaid benefits. It's never been disallowed if you've had uh, contact with the criminal justice system. It's just that specifically while you were institutionalized, Medicaid can't pay for your health care. Okay. So Laura, what makes all of this difficult to study? So as you and Marguerite were thinking about how to study the effects of healthcare on reincarceration and the effects of Medicaid in particular on reincarceration, what hurdles did you have to overcome in order to measure the causal effect there? Was it mostly a data challenge or was it mostly an identification challenge or both of these things? <laughs> what were what were the big hurdles that that you all had to think carefully through? Yeah, definitely both. So, you know, the main sort of problem with thinking about identification is when you look at folks who qualify for Medicaid, they're, of course, already disadvantaged in other ways, particularly their much lower income. And we might think that that has an independent risk for uh, reincarceration and uh, and crime outcomes. They also tend to be sicker. So that's going to matter for, of course, our health sort of channel, right? If uh, the folks on Medicaid are both poorer and sicker, then we maybe would expect them initially to have higher rates of reincarceration or incarceration. And so you have to figure out a way to sort of think of things that are independently driving Medicaid participation that are not related to someone's health and that are not related to someone's poverty. And so that's the first challenge. The second challenge is very big in um, this particular space. And I think bigger than in even other parts of studying Medicaid. And that's like data challenges because it's very hard to capture. I mean, I'm sure your audience is already aware of most of this, but it's very hard to capture folks with criminal justice contact with, say, like survey data because they frequently move, because they're institutionalized and the surveys don't necessarily reach their institutions. Lots of potential reasons. And then when you do have the opportunity to use administrative data, because all of the sort of systems are different and state specific, it's usually pretty hard to get any traction there. And so a lot of states, their like data systems don't even talk to each other or connect. And I'm sure Marguerite can talk more about sort of how we were able to get some of the data that we were able to get. But to be able to follow someone, say, from their jail sentence or prison sentence to their time in the community and then see what happens to them when they're in the community turns out to be just a huge challenge. So in this paper, you do have this amazing data, which we'll talk about in a moment. But on the identification side, you consider uh, the effects of two policy changes in Wisconsin. So you have an expansion of Medicaid eligibility 
and then the implementation of a pre-release Medicaid enrollment assistance program uh, for those who are incarcerated. So Laura, tell us about the Medicaid expansion first. When did that happen and who did it affect? So as I said before, each state has a lot of decisions to make about exactly how it wants its Medicaid program to look. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the history of what was going on in Wisconsin, which is the state that we study. So, you know, Wisconsin had historically covered some adults who were not elderly or disabled, who were kind of working age adults. It had an expansion of uh, Medicaid to parents that it supported. And in 2014, it decided not to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, which would have allowed the state to use federal money, almost all federal money, to cover adults without dependent children. Instead, it decided to take on a limited expansion. And instead of going all the way up to the Affordable Care Act income limit, it went only part of the way, only up to the poverty level. And that happened in April 2014. So sometimes I call this Wisconsin's non-expansion expansion, because if you look on all of the lists of Medicaid expansion states, Wisconsin's not going to be on it. But it did, in fact, increase the generosity of its Medicaid programs by quite a bit in 2014 by covering adults without dependent children up to the poverty line. When we think about who that affected, the vast majority of folks leaving the criminal justice system, leaving the state prison system, would be adults without dependent children. A lot of times when folks are incarcerated, they lose custody. So even if they had been eligible as parents in the past, for example, they would have lost custody of their children and no longer been eligible as parents upon release. And so this is a, you know, 80% of this population was estimated to be uninsured prior. And our first stage results indicate, as we'll talk about in a minute, a very large change. And Marguerite, tell us about the enrollment assistance program. When did that begin and how did it work? In January of 2015, the Wisconsin Department of Corrections launched a pre-release enrollment assistance program for Medicaid. And so what that meant is when an individual is leaving prison, returning to the community, there's a discharge process that involves a, a variety of different kind of planning services. And the Department of Corrections integrated um, Medicaid enrollment assistance into that existing process. And so in practice, what it meant is they gave individuals an opportunity to make a phone call to eligibility worker for Medicaid. So the individual, and, and on that phone call, during that phone call, entire sort of eligibility process could be completed and they could be determined eligible by the conclusion of the call. And so their Medicaid eligibility status was then available sort of on the day of release. And Marguerite, how much did these policy changes affect enrollment in Medicaid? What were you able to figure out from from your analysis? Yeah, as um, as Laura just mentioned, huge effects. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a word I you know get to use a lot. Huge effects. So at baseline, so before this expansion, um, about eight percent of individuals leaving Wisconsin State Prison had Medicaid coverage within the month of release. And 
after the enrollment assistance program was fully in place, that rose 60 percentage points. So almost 70% now at that point for releasing with Medicaid coverage. And that that 60 percentage point increase was roughly split between halfway between you know half of it as a consequence of the eligibility expansion and half of it as a consequence of the pre-release enrollment assistance program. Yeah, it's amazing. So just a huge, huge, I'll repeat your use, huge, <laughs> huge impact on on this very vulnerable pop, vulnerable population, which sets you up nicely to see, okay, then what's the effect of that huge increase in enrollment on behavior? So Laura, how do you use these two policy changes that happened in uh, somewhat, they were they were separate, but somewhat quick succession uh, to measure the causal effect of Medicaid on various forms of behavior. Yeah, I wish we could show the picture on the podcast. <laughs> it's like, it's, you know, that's obvious. Everyone should go look at the paper. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I would argue based on that picture that it, it's very strong, what we would call time series evidence of this effect on enrollment. So you see just this sort of sharp and very large changes in the likelihood of having Medicaid. And it's not necessarily just that it's at release, although that's the timing that we use in the paper, the changes are also pretty persistent. So it's not that you know people eventually enroll in Medicaid expansion on their own over time at the level that enrollment assistance matters. They each matter in, in sort of different ways. But what we're going to do to use this to think about identification is we're going to think of these different Medicaid policy regimes as instruments for Medicaid enrollment. So what we're going to be estimating is the effect of Medicaid enrollment on the outcomes that we're looking at. So we're going to use instrumental variables models. And in those models, sort of what we need to be focused on is, is the timing of someone's release unrelated to the reincarceration outcomes conditional on the other variables in the model. So another way of saying that, you know, we're looking at sort of this four-year period, average incarceration in our samples about two years, the characteristics of individuals released during this time over time are very, very similar. We've looked at what we would call balance. So that means, you know, do the folks who were released look pretty similar in terms of, you know, their age distribution, the types of crimes, all of the things that we're able to observe in our data. And so the thought experiment here is we're comparing somebody who's released in the same calendar month, say January, from the same exact state facility to the same type of location in terms of its uh, rurality, urbanicity, same age group, sex, race, education level, marital status, incarcerated for the same length of time, convicted for the same type of crime under this different Medicaid policy regime with the idea that, you know, their release timing has nothing to do with what Medicaid policy was in place at the time they were released. So when you think about it that way, the sort of remaining issue that we need to deal with is that even though it wasn't a very long period, the economy was different during these different times of policy. And as we already talked about, that could matter. And so 
this was the recovery time from the Great Recession. There was unemployment was trending down. And so what we do to address that is we sort of both control for the employment to population ratios among low education men in the county that you were released to. And we also look sort of at the correlations in our data. So we think about, okay, how much could this change in the economy explain? We look at the literature to think about, you know, how big this effect of this downward trend could possibly be. And basically we think that our results are too big to be explained by just what's going on with the economy outside of what we're able to control for. Yeah. And just to talk through the intuition a little bit more about like why this timing of release really matters. I think for the the pre-release enrollment assistance, it's probably more obvious. So if you are released after this enrollment assistance program goes into effect, you get access to this assistance. <laughs> and so, you know, you got to have someone help you work through the paperwork versus if you got released just before, then you didn't have this assistance. And so you would expect this big jump in enrollment then that seems probably, you know, there, if there's no other program that goes into effect at the exact same time, it's really just that enrollment assistance program, assistance program that would affect, that would explain any change in your outcomes. For the, the timing of release around the Medicaid expansion, I think the assumption here, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the assumption here is that whether you have access to healthcare very early in when you're released or when you're when you're back in the community, that matters a lot. So even if you're eligible, if it took you a month or so to be eligible, that that would have a big impact on behavior potentially and on your um, your outcomes. Is that right? So it's about the having immediate access to healthcare when you're released versus versus not being able to sign up because the law didn't go into effect for another month or two. That's right. So we were we wanted to really zero in because of the research on what happens right after release that Marguerite talked about. We went to really zero in on, you know, what was going on with folks right when they left. And you know, there is a big change in that at the threshold. If we look at this in a slightly different way, we're doing some we have some ongoing work that's looking at this in a in a way that's looking at um, how many months, say, of the first six months out you were, it turns out that those initial enrollment things are really quite persistent. So it's not that folks who were released just a little bit sooner are going to kind of catch up to like having five months or whatever. It also seems like whatever was happening when you were released what you kind of signed up for had some persistence, even if you signed up for it on your own, just because of Medicaid expansion. Yeah. And there might be other just re-entry programs in the community that, you know, you might be accessing immediately when you get out that you aren't accessing three months later. And so that might be part of the mechanism here. In addition to just this, this issue of you're at substantially higher risk for various bad outcomes immediately when you get out. Okay, great. Marguerite, let's talk about these data. <laughs> so what data were you able to put together and what do you use in, in this analysis? So we have, we constructed a release level data set. So for each release, we're essentially combining kind of Department of Corrections administrative data, which provides, you know, dates of entry and exit, um, characteristics of the incarceration episode, the, whether or not there's a, a reincarceration and what dates, 
And then also from the Department of Corrections, we have prescription claims data that the individual, so individuals who are, if they had any medications during the corrections, the incarceration episode, we have those medications associated with that release. We have case management data from the Department of Corrections, which includes kind of a, from which we're getting kind of our main measure of whether someone has a um, a history of substance use disorder or um, mental illness. So that's sort of our bundle from the Department of Corrections to which we are merging Medicaid enrollment and uh, claims and encounter data um, for uh, obviously first stage outcomes and then also for healthcare use outcomes. And then lastly, we are merging the unemployment insurance data to identify employment and earnings for this population. So that we worked with the um, Institute for Research on Poverty at the University of Wisconsin, which has long maintained a, what they um, refer to as the Wisconsin Administrative Data Corps, which includes some of these data and um, that they routinely merge at the person level over time. Um, and then we supplemented that with some of these additional sort of resources from, for example, the prescription claims data from the Department of Corrections and the case management data and I, I failed to mention that the medication data is also one of the um, sources that we use to identify folks with a history of, of mental illness. Amazing. Do you have any interesting backstory here on, I mean, getting these data all together just seems like such an incredible undertaking as we're discussing a little <laughs> bit earlier. Like this is really difficult to link all these different data systems together how long has this been in the works and how did you convince all of these people to cooperate with this, with all of this? Yeah. Um, so I think we got our first, so this is part of a kind of a larger research program at the university of Wisconsin that I'm in, involved with related to reentry. And, and so I think we got our first grant to support the acquisition of some of these data in the spring of 20 or summer of 2019. And so it took quite a long time. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, each stage, sort of the, the getting the agreements, the, the then getting the data, the then merging the data. But I will say that there was, you know, strong support from kind of all the, the parties involved. Our Department of Corrections has a very streamlined process for research proposals and are very research savvy. And the fact that they already had as an established sort of data transfer program with our Institute for Research on Poverty really provided a strong foundation for this. And then Laura and I, through a different sort of body of work, brought in the Medicaid claims data as a routine part of the Wisconsin Administrative Data Court. And so that also became available. So yeah, it, it's a, it was a journey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, of course, getting the grant in 2019 means, you know, the idea was generated and started trying to get the grant years mm-hmm. before yeah. and mm-hmm. logistics yeah. and stuff. So it's been a long time. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you both for your service on this. Uh, <laughs> and for people who are listening who are like, how do I get my hands on all this linked data? I assume they can get in touch with one of the two of you and you can help or talk about project ideas. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Amazing. Excellent. All right. So let's talk about results. Laura, what do you find is the effect of Medicaid enrollment on reincarceration? So in the paper, what we focus on is sort of reincarceration with 
in six months, um, partly because we are are thinking about this sort of initial reentry period as the as the main thing. We also showed sort of some nice graphs of like time to reincarceration and and things like this. But the bottom line, reincarceration within six months, that result that we find is that the effect of Medicaid coverage in the month of release causes a 2.5 percentage point decline in the likelihood of reincarceration within six months. That's about 16% of the baseline. So before any kind of Medicaid policy was implemented, the six-month reincarceration rate, as we define it in our population, was about 16%. And that declines by about 2.5 percentage points because of Medicaid enrollment. I think we talked about this a little bit before when I saw you present this. I mean, the six months is in some ways, still very early in this whole in the reentry journey that uh, that people are on, and so this is a huge effect for for even that initial period. And so I know I am very interested in um, in what happens as as you're able to look at longer time periods. But so this is pairing your huge effect on coverage with now a huge effect on reincarceration risk it's relatively difficult to find policies that move recidivism and reincarceration this much. So this is really striking. And Marguerite, because you're also able to look at employment and earnings, you have all that data linked. How does Medicaid enrollment affect those outcomes? So we measured employment and earnings in the quarter of release. So any employment and then net earnings in the quarter of release. And just a side note that in these analyses, we're adjusting for the month of the quarter in which a person was released. And that would obviously affect their potential earnings in, in that quarter. So in any case, what we found was that Medicaid enrollment increases employment by 5.2 percentage points in um, quarter of release. So that's a relative effect of about 25%. And it increases net earnings by just under $200 in the quarter of release. And that's a relative effect of about a relative increase of about 55%. So big effects again. <laughs> Laura, you dig into these data a bit more to try to figure out why Medicaid is having these big effects. We talked a little bit earlier about all the, you know, a bunch of different potential channels here. So what did you do? What were you able to do with your data? And what were your main takeaways? That's right. So we get asked a lot, I think, about why, I guess this is like a slate diversion, but (laughs) we could ask a lot about why there should be employment or earnings effects. And I think the way that economists would think about this typically would be a sort of like a time use type argument that, you know, if we're going to be spending less time on criminal activities as evidenced by declines in reincarceration, then that's an opportunity to uh, spend more time, you know, in the traditional economy. And that might uh, manifest as increased employment. And so I think I just wanted to say that quickly. Yeah. Or if you're just, if you're less likely to be reincarcerated to begin with, presumably, that means you're more likely to still have a job. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So in terms of the mechanisms behind the reincarceration effect, what we do is because of this unique data that we had access to from the intake forms, the release forms, 
that ask these questions of inmates and because of the ability to sort of condition on prior medication use while in prison, that gives us a way to sort of think about, do we see these incarceration effects in different subsets of the population that's being released that could help us think about the mechanisms? So for example, to think about the financial needs question, we look at this case management instrument that was asked of people while they were in the prison system, which is basically like thinking about your financial situation before incarceration. How often did you worry about financial survival? It's sort of trying to think about, you know, is this someone who might have had partially income motivated type crimes? We divide the sample into folks that reported that they were had been worried about their finances or not worried about their finances. And what we see is that the effect on reincarceration is about twice as big in this subsample of folks who were worried about their finances as it was in the subset of folks who were not. And the subset of folks who reported being worried about their finances were also had sort of a higher baseline reincarceration rate. They have a slightly bigger first stage as well, but it's not dramatically different. So the sort of net increases are about the same. And so I guess in summary, we see a much bigger, uh, twice as big effect in these folks who are worried about the finances. And that uh, we think provides some evidence that this financial channel in terms of the financial benefits of Medicaid is important in this population. Then we think about also, could this be substance use disorder treatment and could this be mental health? So I'll talk first about substance use disorder treatment. One of the things that the prison system does is assesses people's likelihood of need for substance use disorder treatment. They have internal reasons for wanting to do this and they do it through a series of questions that gets sort of turned into this probability. And so we are going to divide people by this probability, which is their system of folks who are unlikely to need substance use disorder treatment, have a probable need for substance use disorder treatment, and have a highly probable need. And, you know, almost 60% of the sample has highly probable, 20% is unlikely, and they're meaning. 20% is probable. And so what we see is first that that's actually pretty accurate in terms of what ends up happening in the community. So almost everyone who gets medication assisted treatment for opioid disorder in the community was in the highly probable group even though those were, you know, questionnaires that happened while folks were incarcerated. And likewise people with an outpatient visit that um, had some kind of substance use disorder diagnosis attached to it, almost all were in the highly probable group, very tiny fraction were in the unlikely group. However, we see all of the reincarceration results in the unlikely group. So the reincarceration coefficient or the effect size is very small in the group that was highly probable for a need for substance disorder treatment. And it's not um, statistically different from zero, but it's 
much bigger and is statistically different from zero in the unlikely group. And so we interpret this as the effect of Medicaid on reincarceration is probably not explained by substance use disorder treatment because it's happening in this group that's not getting substance use disorder treatment. Right. Excellent. I realized I probably should have said earlier, like the other potential channel for the employment result is that people are getting substance use disorder treatment or mental health care that then helps them hold down a job. But still, your takeaways here suggest it's more about the financial channel than the, uh, or just the the safety net aspect of having insurance, which is then, as we were saying before, like consistent with this other literature on Medicaid, right? That that seems to be a big benefit of of getting Medicaid access in the broader population too. That's right. And I, I would say like, I don't know that we have explored whether the SUD treatment effects, I don't remember them being much bigger in the, so the employment hypothesis and SUD treatment or mental health treatment, I'm not sure that we've really explored that angle um, very fully. So I wouldn't want to rule out that type of mechanism, but it's not explaining the reincarceration effects for sure. Got it. Okay. So more to come on the employment side. Excellent. On the mental health side of things, Mm So when we look at the mental health, we have two ways of measuring mental health needs. One is through that intake or case management questionnaire where we use this assessment of mental health needs from that. And then the other is through a history of mental health drug prescriptions while incarcerated. And what we see in the subsample of folks who had mental health needs versus not mental health needs, according to the case management, is we see an effect that's about twice as big among the subset with mental health needs. They are more likely as well to have mental health outpatient visit, although not as sort of dramatically differentially likely as the substance use disorder treatment was. Among the subsamples divided by their past mental health prescriptions, we see sort of the reverse. We see a bigger effect among the folks with no mental health drug prescription and an effect that's not statistically different from zero, although it's still negative in the subset with the mental health drug prescription. So those are sort of opposite signals. Yeah. We also condition on among the subset with mental health needs, people who did and didn't have a prior drug prescription, and among the subset whose case management questionnaire indicated mental health needs, but didn't have a mental health prescription prior, that's where we see the bigger effects. And so we sort of hunt on this a little bit and call it, this is mixed evidence for mental health. We don't necessarily want to say like, One is a better measure of mental health than the other because we have no evidence-based way of of indicating that. Yeah. Okay. Super interesting. So Marguerite, what are the policy implications of these results? What should policymakers and practitioners who are listening take away from the study? I think most importantly, you know, the tagline for me is um, Medicaid coverage matters as a 
resource to reduce recidivism. And so when state health and correction agencies and legislatures are thinking about crafting policy to reduce returns to prison, it should be part of the conversation. And then, you know, relatedly, that means that sort of increasing uh, Medicaid enrollment among this population is also important. And and the in Wisconsin, this kind of relatively, I don't I mean to sort of understate sort of the effort that went into implementing the enrollment assistance program, but it's a relatively kind of low touch kind of a intervention. And that made huge differences as previously stated in terms of Medicaid take up. And so I think that that's another implication as for states to think about how to make Medicaid enrollment easy at the time of release. And then I guess the last thing is um, to, um, you know, we saw really, we didn't talk about this so much, but we saw large kind of relative increases in outpatient care use for substance use disorders as a function of Medicaid enrollment. But in absolute terms, the rates of use remained pretty low compared to what we might expect um, given the health profile of the population. So from sort of a public health perspective, and I, I guess I'm interested in policies that and intervention research to look at how to improve take-up of treatment um, for that population. Yeah, I know this has been a, an issue in other states too. That you, uh, you know, you can get enrollment up really high. That doesn't mean people are actually going to the doctor. And if we think that's an important channel, right? It's not just knowing you have insurance, but actually getting treatment for whatever problems you have. Um, then we need to figure that out next. Yeah. Laura, anything to add on the policy implications? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's important to mention, I think that enrollment assistance gets a really different group than people who find their way to Medicaid under Medicaid expansion alone. Mm -hmm. They're probably a little less healthcare savvy, probably a little healthier on average. And this difference, I think, is important because, you know, it's true that people might be implicitly covered through charity care system or the hospital might sign up to help them sign up for Medicaid if they, you know, arrive with a need. But it's pretty different to walk out knowing you can go see a doctor or refill your prescription at a pharmacy versus not having that sort of security or agency. And and definitely it can make a difference in how long it takes to get care. In general, I think you know, I agree with this view that we make it too hard as a whole to get keep access to health insurance and health care. We have rules that, you know, like MTAL rule that hospitals have to serve people who walk in with emergencies because we want people to have care that they need. But we don't really do that for chronic sicknesses. And instead of sort of fixing this system as a whole, we keep fixing little pieces or giving certain groups a little bit more. And we end up missing a lot until it gets some attention. We even see that in this population right now, right? So I think on the policy implications for other interventions, I think our findings support that facilitating or encouraging the ability to choose to remain in the community, to re-enter the labor market, rather than engage in criminal behavior, that there's some economic logic to that decision and there are folks on that margin who can you know, choose a different path when given support and opportunity. And so supporting these findings that exist for other types of programs that we mentioned and cash assistance and et cetera. Laura, have any other papers related to this topic come out since you all first started working on this study? (laughs) 
many years um, ago. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Over the past decade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost everything on this topic has come up since we started. So, you know, I think I'll say, as I think we've already kind of said this, but our ability to look at like reincarceration, employment, and healthcare use together as well as the information that we have from pre-release assessments that lets us condition on these subgroups is really unique in this literature. There are lots of states that have systems that don't even talk to each other. So, you know, what's been built at Wisconsin is really special, which Marguerite really deserves lots of credit for more than she gave herself. So Mm -hmm. I think our paper is probably closest in spirit to Elisa's, as well as Manasi Deshpande and Mike Mueller-Spiss paper on SSI. Both of those papers are using individual level admin data to think about questions of how health and economic resources available to someone affects their criminal activity. I think the big difference for us is they're looking really only at young people. I think both of those papers use age discontinuities at you know 18 or 19. Of course, our sample is the full population. So it's across the age distribution of non-elderly adults. And Marguerite, what's the research frontier? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others will be thinking about going forward? Medicaid re-entry waivers (laughs) that we referred to earlier. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So this is a huge opportunity for folks from all kinds of different disciplines to sort of understand what kinds of resources, what kinds of uh, are going to be beneficial for folks in in facilitating a sustained return to the community. So these are waivers that they waive the historical uh, inmate exclusion, which prohibits the use of federal Medicaid funds to pay for individuals who are in public institutions. And so state, this is an 1115 Medicaid demonstration waiver, and states have tremendous flexibility in sort of defining the waiver population, the scope of covered services provided before release, the duration of time that they can provide services up to uh, 90 days pre-release, and the modality. So whether in-person telehealth and who's providing it. Are these um, community-based providers? Are these correctional healthcare providers? So there's just tremendous sort of opportunity here to be able to, to examine, you know, what kinds of interventions may be improving kind of post-incarceration outcomes for individuals. This is something I've been watching really closely too. And I think they're just a flag for for the researchers out there. I do think tremendous opportunity to work closely with state officials, both on the design of the waivers to maybe embed some natural experiments, but also a lot of these decisions that will be useful for research will happen on the implementation side. So working with the jails and prisons about I mean, there's just so many decisions that have to be made, right? And these systems have never spoken to each other before. And so everything from exactly what treatments are going to be included, which populations, when it's implemented, where it's implemented, all those things are on the table. And figuring out if we're moving in the direction of a federal policy on this, it'd be really nice to take advantage of this this, this period where states are all trying different stuff to figure out how to get this to work best. So this is, yeah, it's just a place where we really need in my view, all hands on deck to get researchers and practitioners to work together to figure out what has the biggest impact. Yeah. And, and you know, something that I'm sure you're aware of this, but that um, is kind of a unique resource available within this um, demonstration waiver opportunity is that states can ask CMS um, for resources like a 90-10 enhanced federal match for 
design, development, implementation of Medicaid systems that are going to help with eligibility determinations and enrollment, including suspension strategies. So this is an area where there is unusually sort of resources available for, I would say, kind of infrastructure, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of IT systems. So big opportunity, I think, for for states. I guess the other area of, of research that I'm interested in is understanding a little bit more this role of uh, mental health substance use disorder treatment and its potential mediating role. So this is a, it's a tough thing to study. And I think for one, there's a, there's room to sort of better measure both who has these disorders and the types of treatment that they're receiving. You know, we're making the most of what we have, but many of our measures are not really clinically based measures. And so that's, that's another area that I'm interested in pursuing. Laura, how about you? Yeah. So I agree on thinking about, you know, the, the role of mental health and substance use disorder treatment, especially because we know that treatments for SUD and mental health can work mm-hmm. and that those types of health problems can cause big externalities. It's just that giving people insurance doesn't seem like it. I mean, well, obviously it doesn't actually fix other barriers like supply or treatment compliance. And so understanding sort of how we can get more people into evidence-based treatment protocols is a is an important thing. Who are the people that would be most helped on this re-entry margin? In some ongoing work, we've been looking at who continues taking their prescription medicine for different types of chronic conditions once they're in the community. And that work is purely descriptive, but you know, it is also suggestive that connecting quickly to outpatient care can make a big difference potentially. We just got mortality data, so we need some time to work on it, but more to come on that topic from us. And then I personally continue to be very interested in the work decisions and the dynamics of participation in in the formal labor market after folks return to the community. And so we've been trying to get some work funded to extend our data time and then merge in information on where people live post-release so we can understand some of these questions of proximity to local resources like doctors, pharmacies, uh, mental health clinics. Like, Fantastic. So much work to do. Uh, I'm glad you guys are going full speed ahead on this. My guests today have been Marguerite Burns from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Laura Daig from Texas A&M University. Thank you both so much for talking with me. Thanks for having us on, Jen. Pleasure to be here. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures and our other contributors for supporting the show. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. If you enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.